Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Y'all, I now officially work in the kelp industry. Needless to say, I see weed every day. There was a woman that went to an herbalist looking for wisdom. And all she got was sage advice. Today, we are diving into the wonderful world of seaweeds. My guest today is Allison Poklemba, environmental educator, botanist, herbalist, and all-around good gal. Allison shares how plants have fascinated her from a young age, why her move across the country for university was the financially responsible choice, and how she incorporated botany and a deeper understanding of plants, herbalism into her career. Allison puts a few different species of kelp on highlight today, including bullwhip kelp and wakame. She shares how kelp will actually devour cancer tumors, how a walk on the beach can also be a walk in a medicine cabinet, and some fun ways to cook with sea vegetables. We have a two-part fun ask for you at the end of today's episode, so stay tuned for that. During today's show, Allison talks a bit about harvesting plants in the wild and asked me to let y'all know that, as with most things, there is an etiquette to the collection of plants, including different state and national laws and regulations, and this can change for various levels of environmentally sensitive places. I also recommend that if you're interested in harvesting herbs or plants of any kind, you really know your plants. As we learn in this episode, while some can be very helpful, some can be lethal. Be sure to understand fully both what you're wildcrafting and the etiquette protecting them. Now, without further ado, here is Allison. Allison, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat herbs with you today. Kara, I am so excited that you invited me onto this and that you are considering seaweed herbs. That makes me very happy. (laughs) So I want to take it back. Well, I've been learning that like kind of everything is an herb. All plants can be herbs or medicinal. So this is, this is fascinating for me. So I want to take it back. You have a degree in botany. Why plants? What made you decide to pursue your studies in plants? Now, I don't know if this is going to be too woo-woo in some way for your audience, but I have really always felt a connection with plants. And Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I remember, um, one of my first memories of plants was 
with my cat and we had this big fluffy calico cat and you could probably guess her name was fluffy (laughs) and she used to crawl in these little tunnels through the ferns and I remember following her through there in the fern tunnels and just feeling like that was this really magical experience as a little kid Mm -hmm. and so there was like this sense of wonder there um and that just really stuck with me with plants as I got older and just being really wowed by the variety and Anytime I learned a new plant, it would just help bring this whole big green blur into focus a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And then I was also really interested in the connection between plants and people. So also as a little kid, I remember making different concoctions. I grew up in New Hampshire, which is the granite state. And we had a couple big granite boulders that were in our front yard. And I remember picking different leaves and berries and acorns and things like that and smashing them up on the rocks and adding a little water and trying to feed these concoctions to my little sister. (laughs) But I just felt like the, these plants, like there's something here that I just don't know. Um, but that is, is benefiting people in some way. And so then when I found my way in college and I took my first botany, you know, general botany class, I was really just something clicked. This was for me. And so I went through college um, learning about botany, but alongside that, I was also learning about herbalism. So I kind of had two different tracks of study happening at the same time, which one was really informing the other. It was a beautiful partnership. And then um, when I graduated and I I looked out and saw, well, what careers are available for a botanist? And they consisted of things like wandering around in the forest or in the desert looking for rare or or invasive plants. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a couple different summers and found that I was really um, not made in the long term for that sort of seasonal work lifestyle. It's fun, but I just couldn't really do it forever. And so I went back to school and got into science teaching, which really my enthusiasm for plants was what I wanted to share in that doing the work of like a rare plant botanist and writing up your report wasn't really like scratching that itch for me. I wanted to be able to share this with other people. So sort of why plants? I love it. Yeah, it's something... It's funny, there there can be kind of two tracks, like the true science and researching and just want to like be alone and immersed and then the like communication side. And it's like a beautiful thing when they can be um, meshed together, but sometimes it takes the communicator to like, to actually bring the science or the research or the cool thing that the researcher found into the world. So I get that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the focus in um, the more academic world now has uh, just more emphasis being put on being able to communicate your findings and there's like like here we are on a podcast there are just more and more venues for that now too which is a beautiful thing that's true true absolutely so you grew up in new hampshire and then you went to college in california that's a huge jump What, what inspired you to go to california well you know i did one year of college initially at the university of rhode island as an out-of-state student at 17 years old. And one year of college, I realized I was now almost $20,000 in debt. Mm. And when I signed the paperwork for those loans that I took out, 
at 17 years old and didn't realize that that was like real money that you had to pay back. <laughs> and so <laughs> after that first year and I realized that it, it frightened me and I had a friend who was going to college in California and let me know that if you were an in-state student in California, that college was really, really inexpensive. Mm. And so I sort of followed her out here to Humboldt County, which isn't really on everyone's radar screen. It's a relatively small community. It sort of feels like you're in an island behind the Redwood Curtain, which is what we call it. We're up here in the um, beautiful Redwood Forest along the Pacific Ocean. And um, I was able, once it took one year to gain residency, and then I went to college for, it was $963 my first semester. I couldn't believe it. Hmm, that's a significant and, drop. And so I was, it was. And so I was able, it was really practical reasons that I came out here um, and I was able to make it through college without taking out additional student loans. So it took me a good 15 years to pay off just that first year of college. And then it turned out that where I landed was the most amazing place for what I was interested in, botany. Um, the uh, botany program here, it was Humboldt State University. And Kara, over the past month or so, Humboldt State is now Cal Poly Humboldt, which is very excited about um, exciting shift. We're now the third Cal Poly in California. And um, what made this school so amazing for studying plants was that it was so field-based. We weren't just looking at dead samples in an herbarium. We were out there in the mountains finding things, looking for things, getting real hands-on experience. Yeah. So it turns out this was an amazing place to be. And now, 25 years later, here I am and I'm raising my own family here. And I, <laughs> I couldn't ask to live in a more beautiful place. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. Up there is absolutely gorgeous. And there is so much diversity, I feel like, up there as well. It's true. It's true. <laughs> we are a biodiversity hotspot, both on the land in the Klamath Mountain region and that transfers to the ocean, which I know we're going to transition here to seaweed at some point. And I can get more into that. but. The, once you start looking at the life forms here, you're just like, wow, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So let's chat a little bit about seaweed. What inspired you to kind of take a little closer look at the plants in the ocean versus the plants on land? Good question. Well, I back there at Humboldt State University, I took a course which was required for the botany major called Phycology, which is the mm -hmm. study of algae. And one thing that we had to do, we have amazing professor, Frank Shaughnessy, and like I was saying, this is a really field-based program, is we had to go out and collect samples to create uh, herbarium specimens. So we had to find, uh, I think it was, I want to say 75 different species or around that amount that we had to collect, press, um, mount as herbarium, herbarium specimens, identify, create labels for, and it really helps you to learn the different species. Mm -hmm. So as I'm taking that course, I'm also taking classes in herbalism and learning about, oh, you can eat this stuff and it's really good <laughs> for your body. Oh, and it you don't have to just buy it um, in a packaged form that came to you from somewhere on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, we actually have very similar species that are growing right on our coast right here that are abundant and beautiful. And oh, 
I can harvest a little of this. So I was always the strange student who was nibbling on things at, in the plant labs. <laughs> and my, my fellow students always looked at me a little funny and, you know, with a, a curious, a curious grin. And it led to some really good conversations. And sometimes they would sample things alongside me. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So were these herbalism classes also at the same university or was this separate? Uh, separate. So I took courses through Dandelion Herbal Center, which mm-hmm. in a strange twist of fate, I am now uh, one of the co-directors for. Just um, the founder of the school recently retired over the past couple months and myself and um, someone who was actually in my same cohort from 1999, Jessica Shepard. She and I took over directorship of the school. And then I've studied just you know, through different conferences and correspondence courses and things with teachers from really around the world. Oh, and so in another interesting twist of fate, I wound up teaching an herbalism class for HSU, Humboldt State. That was a one credit course. And I taught that class for, I don't know, maybe five years or so. So there did be, I didn't take herbalism in college, but was able to create an herbalism class at the college for students. Very cool. Yeah. So I want to get into a little bit um, dandelion herbs. You, like you mentioned, you just took it over. So it's it's a total herbalism school, right? You have like immersives, you can take classes or you can go do nature walks. Could you describe a little bit about what dandelion herbs does? Certainly. Yeah, we, that's a good question. We are teaching about the connection between plants and people and mm-hmm how you want to jump into learning about that information has a, a variety of entry points, I guess you could say. So it might just be that you would like to learn more about the plants that are growing in your backyard and are there medicinal or edi- wild edible plants growing in your backyard. And so you might join us for an herb walk in a ecosystem that looks similar to where you live. Or maybe you're interested in learning how to make medicine. You want to, to learn all about making your own tea blends and tinctures and infused oils and salves and shrubs and uh, syrups and herbal honeys and all sorts of things. So we have medicine making course, which is sort of like a beginning level course. And then you might want to dive even deeper into all of this and learn how to take better care of yourself and your loved ones in your community by doing more of like a herbal immersion. So we have our 10 month long herbal studies program that takes like a body systems approach to learning about herbal medicine. So each of our um, classes, we really spend a whole day learning about the reproductive system or the digestive system and et cetera, and therapeutic herbs that can um, assist with common imbalances of these various systems. And then we also, um, like the rest of the world in some ways, are transitioning. And so these are all in-person experiences. So you're like Mm -hmm. out there and with the plants, you're in the garden, you are making the medicine yourself. And so we're also transitioning into having more online experiences too. So in May, we have our first webinar series coming up about deepening your intuition because it turns out that that's an important part of herbalism too. Once you really get into it, you see, you're like, oh my gosh, I am dealing with headaches 
what herbal medicine, plant medicine is available to me to help with headaches. And there are so many options. And so it really, there is this intuitive component there to be able to choose what is best for you or for your loved ones. So starting out the webinar world there with a deepening your intuition series, which I'm really excited to get into. Yeah, I love that. I think that, I mean, it's kind of important in life in general, right? Like everybody has that gut feeling whether you like choose to acknowledge it or ignore it. That's a big part of it. Yeah. How do you recognize that intuitive hit that you get about something? Because it kind of feels different for everybody. And then how do you learn to trust it and follow it? Right. Absolutely. So you offer sea cooking, sea vegetable cooking classes, and then there's ocean herbalism as well, correct? Yeah. So one thing that we have coming up in um, in the spring is a seaweed adventure weekend. Mm. And so we go out to the amazing Lost Coast region, which is south of where I am by about an hour and a half or so. And we visit these incredible tide pools that um, there was a, I think it was 1992. There was a, it was a few years before I moved out here. There was a significant earthquake that uh, one of the the repercussions of the earthquake was that this area of sea floor lifted up about a meter. And so as it did, it exposed all this rock mm. that um, was currently subtitled, before that subtitle. And so it created all these new tide pools. And it turns out they are just so rich with seaweed life. It's a, an amazing place to explore. So we go out to these tide pools we learn about ethical and legal harvesting of sea vegetables, which is just another way to say edible seaweed. Mm-hmm. And then we create a beautiful dinner with what we've collected. So we learn about cooking with seaweed and medicinal uses of seaweed and seaweed for for fun as well. So it turns into a whole weekend adventure of just like a deep immersion into seaweed world. That's amazing. So that's coming up and that's super fun. So what, what seaweeds do you have out there that are, that you're collecting, that you're eating, that you're using for medicine? There are probably about a dozen of the the biggies out here that we are harvesting. And some of these are species that anyone who has eaten at a sushi place or a Japanese restaurant is familiar with. So you think about nori. Have you had nori? Mm -hmm. You probably had nori. (laughs) So we have, um, nori is the genus, it was porphyra and now it's pyropia. Mm -hmm. And we have about 20 different species of nori that grow out here. Wow. So I didn't realize there's so many different species of nori. Yeah, it's really interesting. Are you familiar with the bullwhip kelp? I, or bull kelp? I've just, I've just learned about it. It's a very charismatic species because you can picture something that is, 70 feet long or so um, with the classic sort of bulb on the top and then almost like a um, mohawk hairdo of fronds coming off from the top of that. So there is even a species of the nori that only grows on the stipe or the long stem of that neurocystis, the bull kelp. So some of them are very specific, but we have a number of species that. that you can harvest and and enjoy. And they don't come from actually places where they're farmed in South Korea. You can harvest them right from the the shore here. 
So that's very delicious. And then if you've ever had seaweed salad at a Japanese restaurant, mm -hmm. that's typically made with wakame. So we have Alaria marginata that grows here, which is a slightly different species than if you were to go across the Pacific and have seaweed salad. It's but it's, you know, like a very close cousin and used interchangeably. We have a, if you've had kombu, which is what um, dashi broth is made with. Okay. We have Laminaria sechelii, that, which grows here, which is our... It's like traditional. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. And so that's another, I just want to mention quickly, people get confused a little bit by the terminology. Yeah. So like, what's the difference between kelp and seaweed and algae? <laughs> So algae is sort of like the big all-encompassing term that includes things like pond scum type of freshwater algae, or um, if you see like a green powdery surface on the north side of, um, of a tree growing on the bark, that could be typically a type of algae. Mm -hmm. Or even if you have something that is sort of like pinkish growing in the corner of your shower, that's an algae too. And then we have a lot of seaweeds. So then a seaweed is something that is a marine algae. So growing in salt water. And then if it's a really big one that happens to be in, there's three different general groups of algae, greens, reds, and browns. Mm -hmm. The browns are usually quite large, not always, but usually quite large. That's what we refer to as kelp. Mm -hmm. So there's like many different kinds of kelp. <laughs> but if you purchase a product, anything from um, plant fertilizer to vitamins to dog food <laughs> that includes an ingredient that says kelp, what that usually is, is the um, bull kelp, that which we were just talking about. Okay. Those fronds that grow on the top of the bulb are what are collected and sold as kelp kelp hmm. yeah very interesting so are you out there like making collecting these and making seaweed salad and sushi during your class yes we are it's fabulous you go out and like do this for dinner on a regular basis or semi-regular basis well you know there's there are seasons to different seaweeds oh, so just like you wouldn't be harvesting you know blueberries from your bushes all year there's like seasons that we follow for different species so during certain times of the year yes absolutely having fresh seaweed is fabulous the thing about seaweed is that it's kind of like well well we are in you know we're in the very southern tip here of the Pacific Northwest but there's a lot of moss <laughs> air and lichen and you can picture how those types of organisms when they dry out they look like they're not even alive anymore mm. and then you add some water to them and they just spring right back to life mm. that is sort of how seaweed is too it's once you add water to it, it, it just poof instantly it's returns to the same way it looked if you just plucked it out of the ocean. So the way that we preserve most seaweeds, not all, but most of them is by drying them. So I'll harvest certain species during the early or the late spring and early summer, and then have those on hand stored up in my cupboard to enjoy throughout the year. Amazing. So how is seaweed medicine? We talked about how you can eat it in salads and sushi. Well, you know, the first thing I'll mention about that is that the classic line, food is our medicine. Yes. So it turns out the seaweed is, it falls into the category of superfood. Mm -hmm. 
and more some species more so than others. I really oh, this is one thing I just wanted to get back to here real quick is just I'm going to run through some of these names of seaweed that we harvest for food just so you can like hear the variety. Sea lettuce, nori, bladder rack, sea sack, otherwise known as sea condom, uh, rainbow leaf, sea oak, feather boa, wakame, sea cabbage, kombu, bull kelp, and sea palm which is actually our only species that requires a special permit to harvest because it is um, threatened from overharvesting because it is so delicious. Mm. So those are, that's a lot of variety to choose from in terms of like, these are, you can think of each one as his own type of vegetable Mm -hmm. to incorporate into your diet. And some of these are more nutritious than others. And I'll just put the spotlight for a sec on nori because people are most familiar with that incredible superfood. So 35% roughly by dry weight is just protein in the nori. Mm. That's amazing. All seaweeds have this ability to concentrate elements from the ocean water into their bodies, Mm. which we call their thallus, T-H-A-L-L-U-S. And some concentrate certain things more than others. Iodine is sort of the classic one that we look to, and iodine was first discovered as an element in laminaria, the kombu. So they can be very high in certain things like that. The wakame is really high in vitamin A. They're high in magnesium, all these things that we kind of want. They're also really high in fiber. So there's there are two different types of fiber, soluble fiber which is um, if you picture like biting into a blueberry and you look inside the blueberry and there's like, what, like what is the consistency that comes to your mind, Caro, when I mentioned that? Uh, I, I mean, it's almost kind of gelatinous. It's exactly right. Yeah. yeah it's like a gel. Yeah. And so soluble fiber is gel-like. And so it, they are, some species are up to like 65% soluble fiber. Hmm. And so why is soluble fiber good for you? Well, it actually slows your digestion, which maybe that doesn't sound like a good thing, but where it happens in your body actually is. So it helps you to feel more full. And so seaweed is often touted as like, oh, this amazing weight loss (laughs) thing, (laughs) which is kind of a side story. If you look at different like weight loss things that are out there, it's oftentimes uh, made up of a dried seaweed powder that is in a little capsule and you eat it. And then once you drink a bunch of water, all of that soluble fiber that was dry uh, mixes with the water and expands up to 300 times its size. So suddenly you had this little bit of something in your stomach and expanded. So it makes your stomach feel really full, like you've had enough to eat. You're satiated. Ah, fascinating. Yeah, (laughs) kind of a strange thing, a little twist on how people sort of exploit different uh, properties of seaweed. But the other thing about that is that it helps to even out your sugar metabolism. And so when you have a little bit of seaweed with what you're eating, or whenever you have soluble fiber in general, it helps your body to not get sugar spikes. Mm. And it just kind of slows all that down, sort of like if you were going to drink a glass of orange juice versus just eating an orange. Your body's having a different experience with that because of the fiber that's in the orange versus 
no fiber in the orange juice. That makes sense. The fiber in the orange just helps helps regulate that sugar spike, whereas straight orange juice is like drinking sugar. Woo! Right? Yeah. Yes, exactly right. So they are seaweeds are also rich in insoluble fiber, which can you picture biting into a spear of celery and seeing all the little strings in mm-hmm. there? That is insoluble fiber or in like dark leafy greens. So that actually doesn't dissolve in your system like the soluble fiber. And so it helps things to move through your digestive tract more quickly for healthy elimination. And that's important for all sorts of different things, as we know. (laughs) So they kind of hit it on both sides with the fiber, which is awesome. Yeah. Seaweeds also do something amazing called um, chelation or chelators, which is C-H-E-L-A-T-E to chelate. Mm -hmm. And so this means that they have certain um, compounds in them that will bond with heavy metals or radioactive compounds in your body and create a new molecule that cannot be reabsorbed by your body and actually passes right through. What? Yes. That's to think about. So this, <laughs> I'm just thinking about what's happening over in Ukraine with the, um, depending on when people are listening to this podcast, but in recent news, mm-hmm. Russia has just taken control of the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, in Ukraine, which has people a little bit nervous. And um, we think about other radioactive or nuclear power plant disasters that have happened, not that we're having one, but, you know, of course, there's always the potential. And you think about Chernobyl and what was handed out to people after that accident in the immediate aftermath was seaweed. Fascinating. Yes, because it is both helping your body to go through this chelation process. And also, we talked about different species of seaweed being really rich in iodine. And where iodine is held in your body, the element is filling the hole in certain receptors. Hmm. And so if your receptors are not filled with iodine, and then radioactive iodine hits you, that radioactive iodine is going to see these spots where it could connect up with your tissues and fill those. Mm. But if you can fill those spots instead with non-radioactive iodine by eating up the seaweed that was harvested before the disaster, um, those spots will be filled and then the radioactive iodine has nowhere to land in you and will pass right through. Okay. So in addition to just like providing the overall protection, it actually acts like by filling these iodine holes, then it also will like bind to these compounds and help eliminate it. So it does it like a one, two punch kind of with this. That's exactly right. Amazing. And then I will say also about seaweed um, that it's, it's an incredible anti-inflammatory. So if you think about, um, for example, my, my friend, Christine, she went on this awesome vacation a couple of years ago to Ireland and she sent me a picture of her trip and said, look where I am. And it was a picture she, that she took of her feet, you know, looking kind of, she was, she was in a big clawfoot bathtub filled with seaweed. And I could, she took a picture from in there and I could just see her toes sticking up through, through the seaweed. And she paid like big bucks to have this of what is called thalassotherapy okay. or ocean therapy spa experience right. <laughs> of bathing with seaweed, which is something if you have access to, 
to uh, coastal waters that you too can create your own thalassotherapy experience in your own tub at home. Um, and why this is touted as such great medicine for your body is because the seaweed is such a powerful anti-inflammatory. So you can have that uh, benefit by topical application, say like by soaking in it or providing like a, a poultice, which would be like ground up seaweed that you're applying to the to your skin or even you've heard about like seaweed wraps and things. Mm-hmm. Or you could have seaweed internally, which would be by eating it, making a tea, um, consuming like seaweed powders, people put in smoothies and things like that. Or even some seaweeds are tinctured, which means that they're they are extracted into typically an alcohol-based solution. So is this all seaweeds have these medicinal properties or only specific species? Or is it kind of just like each species varies in their different levels of medicine and what they provide? That last bit is correct. Yes, they all have these general properties, but certain species, especially when you're looking at the certain big groups, the greens, the reds, and the browns, seaweeds within the same group tend to have more similar properties to them because they have more similar, um, they're made up of more similar stuff. Gotcha. And um, that anti-inflammatory part there turns out is really important for disease prevention in so many different regards. And we think about one disease of inflammation potentially is cancer. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of money that goes into cancer research. So that's something that we know a little bit more about. Mm And there is a compound called um, uh, fucoidin, Mm -hmm. which has been shown to actually destroy, it's anti-tumor. So it's not just like preventing cancer, but it's actively destroying cancer cells, at least demonstrated in a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty great. And that's a compound fucoidin from the seaweed fucus. Hmm which is bladder rack or um, rack weed, which depending on where people are listening to this, if you are sort of at a similar um, latitude to where I am, this is a seaweed that really exists around the world. So it's a keystone species of Northern Europe. You can find it all around. And it's usually what people think of when they think of seaweed and something that's slippery on the rocks is this fucus. Yeah. That makes total sense. For me, the most common seaweed that we have here is sargassum by far and away. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I need to come to Florida and learn my Florida seaweed. <laughs> that would be fun. Do a seaweed tour of Florida. Do you have a favorite seaweed that you like to eat and or a favorite seaweed that you like to use as medicine? Yes. Actually, they're the same seaweed. Okay. So I will talk about um, wakame. Alaria marginata is our local species here. And this is something, it's also sometimes called as a common name, sea ribbon or ocean ribbon. Mm -hmm. And you can picture something that is maybe like 12 feet long that has, it's about as wide as um, maybe up to like a foot wide. Mm -hmm. And it's like a big ribbon in the ocean with kind of ruffly edges Mm -hmm. and um, a thicker midrib, almost like there's a thicker ribbon going down the whole length of this big ribbon. And you can picture that when this is out in the, in a tide pool, it likes to exist in a spot where 
water is sort of rushing back and forth in and out of that tide pool area. Mm -hmm. And so it just has this beautiful, roughly oscillating sort of thing that it does all along its margin. So one, it's gorgeous. I love it. It's also my favorite color, which is sort of like this um, olive greeny, beautiful CBD color. Yeah. Oh, that's Turns such out, a botanist favorite color. <laughs> right? Right. I, um, so I, and you know, another aspect of my life, I, I love creating art of one form or another, and I'm just like really sensitive to color in general, mm -hmm. as some people are. And so if you're familiar with Pantone, Pantone is, um, I don't know if they're a business or an organization or what, but they name all the colors. Like every color that's out there has a distinct name and number code associated with oh. it. And each year they put out the color of the year. And I guess you could call it the like least favorite color of the year. Okay. <laughs> and recently their worst color of the year was this color. <laughs> My favorite color. And I was so offended <laughs> in a playful way. But still, I just couldn't believe it. Because I think it's like this golden green, you know, I think it's gorgeous. But apparently people associate that color, ironically, with illness. Oh. Yeah, but they needed to see it in the seaweed form. And then I think they'd have a change of heart. Yeah, it's all about your own perspective and your experiences, right? You see it as yeah. a beautiful seaweed and... The only time they've seen it is an illness. Interesting. Yeah, right. So this seaweed, it turns out, is super fun to cook with and just lends itself to such like versatile, creative ideas because you can picture you have this really long ribbon to play with. Mm -hmm. So I love to make things with this where um, you can picture taking a section of this ribbon that's maybe like a foot long and roll. It's thin. It sort of feels like, um, do you remember like fruit roll-ups mm -hmm. or fruit leather? Oh, yeah. It sort of feels like a thin, stretchy version of like a fruit leather, mm. but very smooth in texture. And so you could take a 12-inch by like 6-inch, say, rectangle of this ribbon and roll it up. And then with your sharp knife, cut your little rolled-up thing into a bunch of different slices mm -hmm. And then you would unfurl those, like unfurling the spiral of it, and you get these long noodles, like fettuccine noodles made out of seaweed. That's really fun to play with yeah. in the kitchen. So can you eat it kind of like fettuccine? <laughs> Absolutely. You can. Yeah. And you, ha you have a young family. Like, do your children eat it? They think it's so fun. They love eating it. Yes. And well, it also depends like how you present it. So I have this one recipe that I love to make called seaweed candy. Oh, there you go. That's how you <laughs> yeah, eat so it. Yeah, it's a good like entry point. Yep. They also love to take baths with the seaweed. We have this uh, very common species here that we call feather boa. And you can picture something several feet long that you would wrap around your neck and have the same sort of look like you were wearing a feather boa. Mm. And it turns out that one is really fun to take into the bathtub and that all those little feathers coming off of the boa yeah. because of the power of um, osmotic, osmotic potential in the fresh water of your bathtub, they puff up with the fresh water and then you can use them like little squirters in the tub to squirt your little brother with. <laughs> so they like that. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, 
So yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, oh, like I could totally go collect. Sarg- we have so much sargassum, especially in the summertime. Like I could totally go collect sargassum off the beach and like plop it in the bathtub. But I mean, a lot like if it's on the beach, it's most likely dried out, especially in the summer. It dries so fast. And if we collect it from the water, like there's definitely critters on it. Like there's so much sea life that lives in these sargassum mats. So is it not the same for you? Some of the species, there are very little uh, critters that can live in them. Like the wakame I was just describing. Mm-hmm. It's just like such a smooth moving surface in the water mm-hmm. that maybe there's the occasional little like kelp crab that will be found there. Mm-hmm. But really there's nothing else living on it in terms of critters that you are like displacing if you take it out. Yeah. Other yeah. things like the feather boa I was just talking about have a lot more surface area and a lot more little nooks for things to be living. Mm-hmm. And so when a big part of harvesting seaweed is um, making sure that you are cleaning it really well in the ocean water before you take it home. Mm. So that is like a certain amount of energy output that you have to do that you have to make sure you're like budgeting yourself for. (laughs) (laughs) And then time commitment too, because that's the worst would be to come home and find that you had carried this little crab with you into the bathtub. And now that's the end of that little guy. So we don't want it to be doing that. So it takes a lot of swishing around in the water to make sure that you've left all the little critters behind. That makes total sense. Let me just go back to Wakame for a second. Because you had also asked me about um, what is my favorite one to use as medicine. And so I just want to also say about this species, now that you have an image of it in your head of like what its basic shape and texture is, you can picture also having a strip of that to use like an ace bandage. Mm. Seaweed has these amazing anti-inflammatory properties. Let's say that you are out on those rocks and you slip and you twist your ankle and you're on the beach. We have seaweed there as a first aid helper. So you can take a length of that wakame and wrap it around your ankle. And as it dries, it's going to tighten and shrink a little bit. Mm. It has such water content in it. And so it provides support it sticks to itself as it starts to dry a little bit and shrink. And it's like um, a a topical application of this for your skin to provide anti-inflammatory properties. So it's just seaweed is is so cool and um, versatile that way. Yeah, that's so amazing. It's so fun to think about that, you know, you don't have to like run to the store and go get medicine and ace bandage. Like you could take a walk on the beach and it's right there. It's so cool. Or a walk in the forest. We're not even touching about the land plants right now. No, 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 no. I, I think that once you start to see seaweed often like falls under this category of plants, though it is not a plant, which we didn't really address. It's in its own kingdom of life, mm-hmm. which is sort of a miscellaneous haphazard category <laughs> called kingdom chromista, which is where they put all the oddballs that um, weren't didn't have a clear place to go otherwise. <laughs> So not necessarily a plant, but once you start to to see uh, the algae and plants and also fungi in this way, an occasional moss or lichen thrown in there for good measure, the it's really like looking at the world as if you're seeing a whole bunch of good buddies yeah. that yeah. you're helping. There is a reciprocity that has to be noted here too, that you are helping them out how you can and they're helping you out as, in return. Love it. So something I was really curious about, and it's totally not seaweed related. You have your own publishing company, Backcountry Press. What inspired you to start 
your own publishing company? My husband is totally obsessed with conifers. Mm. And he wrote this book called Conifer Country, which was um, sort of a strange book because it didn't really fit into any clear book format. It was one part uh, field guide. Mm -hmm. It turns out that where we live here on the edge of the Klamath Mountains of Northwest California and Southwest Oregon is one of the biodiverse hotspots on our planet. It's a really cool meeting ground of plants that have their southern range extension here, their northern range extension, their um, westernmost range extension. They all sort of overlap. It's also an area that was spared from some of the more recent glaciation events, Mm -hmm. and it became like a refuge for plants that then acted as a seed bank to repopulate the West. It's also a very strange mishmash of geology. It's like a whole puzzle of different soil types and things. So there are a number of different species that only exist in these mountains and nowhere else. So he discovered the conifers here. And um, not that he found them. I don't mean that. <laughs> I mean that for himself, it was a um, awakening to plant diversity mm. through conifers in that there are actually more species of conifers existing in one square mile in these mountains in this particular spot than anywhere else on the planet. It's just, it's wild. And it's a place that is um, incredibly fascinating to explore. Mm -hmm. So he wrote this book that would help to identify these different conifer species as sort of a gateway to appreciating this underappreciated little known region. Mm -hmm. And then the book was one third talking about why there is such diversity here. And then one third talking about um, these are hikes that you can go on to actually see these different trees and experience this amazing diversity yourself. Okay. And that wasn't something that other publishers were really like, they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it was a weird model of a book. It also turned out to be his master's thesis, which was pretty cool. It was the first time that there was a project-based master's thesis in biology that came through our university here since uh, the early 1970s. Oh, wow. So it sort of changed the model there. Yeah. And so he said, you know what, let's just, I'm going to see what happens if I self-publish this. Okay. And so we got the book in hand uh, two days before our first child was born. <laughs> and so this book was our first, truly our first child. <laughs> and um, and then it turned out that that one thing led to another in terms of um, he wound up publishing another conifer book after that called Conifers of the Pacific Slope, which was um, all more of a field guide to all of the conifers between British Columbia and Baja. Yeah. And then we turned into this sort of magnet for creating more specialized field guides, like field guide to manzanitas. Yes, there's a field guide just for manzanitas, which for certain people who are into certain types of plants, this was a bit of a godsend. Okay. And then uh, it turned out that there were a whole bunch of people that had these passion projects that they were sitting on that were natural history, nature exploration, hiking related, that we could help bring these dreams to fruition by producing these books. And so every year, it's just been a couple more and a couple more books. And it's really, the business has taken on a life of its own, especially with pandemic life as we we're, we're both um, science teachers at heart yeah. and environmental educators. We actually met in the science teaching program in college. 
And so we can't just be like, <laughs> like I was telling you my story earlier about being the rare plant botanist working out in the field, finding cool things. Something in me was really drawn to sharing those finds too. And so a similar thing here in that we also want to be teaching about these plants and nature experiences and so forth. And so we began doing webinars about these different topics, starting with different authors that we were working with, but really going into all sorts of different things. We did a a fabulous series this last fall, all about mushrooms, forest mushrooms of the Pacific coast. So looking at ecology and identification and evolution and all sorts of things. So it's sort of become a a very interesting model for a publishing company, which is attracting a, a different type of author that wants to, yes, publish their work, but also interact more with their community of people that are interested in their work by having field experiences with them um, and being able to provide in-person or online classes as well. That's super cool. I love that you've just, I love what you've created. Like you created this herbalism, botanist, mishmash, and like totally made it work. And then now you have this publishing company. I don't know. It's really cool. It's really cool to see what people kind of create and figure out in their life. Thanks so much for saying that. I really feel like uh, this area where we live too, like I was talking about earlier, sort of like, it's almost like it's on on its own island Mm. and we're not um, surrounded by water, though there is a lot of water influence here, but we're surrounded by sort of a rugged terrain and this redwood curtain, as we call it, of the redwood trees. And this whole area just like lends itself to such innovation because there's not a lot going for it in terms of industry. Mm-hmm. Those industries, mm-hmm. which were fisheries and timber, have really died out. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to create your own thing. And, um, I just feel so lucky. I've been working for decades now to create sort of our own thing that is really in line with where my passions are. And it's happening. And I'm glad that it's able to touch people's lives in a way that gets them excited about the natural world around them and then out there into it to explore. And then you know, you if you want to take care of it first, you have to love it. And so this really is going with a, a stewardship and conservation message. Yes, absolutely. So what is one of your favorite plants to hunt for? And this could be land or sea, or if you want to provide one of each. Oh, I like this question. Thank you. <laughs> Um, well, I'll just throw an aside there of mushrooms because we've had such a fabulous mushroom season <laughs> and they are, they are just, and when, when I say mushrooms, I mean like some favorite edibles like King Bolites and Black Chantrelles. You kind of have a general idea where they're going to be, but it's always a surprise when you find them Okay. Um, versus plants that are rooted in the ground. And you know that if you're coming to this elderberry shrub, (laughs) Uh, you know that it's been growing there for quite a while and it's going to be there most likely year after year. So I do love harvesting my own um, elderberries. And if people are into plant based medicine at all. Elderberry is surely something that you've tried. And I love it when we have an analog locally to something that you purchase in the store that comes from another place, which is sort of how it is with seaweed here. So when we, if you're going to the store and you were going to get like elderberry syrup or elderberry, um, 
uh, gummies or something like that for like cold and flu season to help fight back viruses and boost your natural immunity. The species of elderberry is Sambucus nigra, which is the European black elderberry. Mm -hmm. But here we have the blue elderberry, Sambucus cerula, which grows in our mountains and is, you know, a close cousin and can be used just the same and is fabulous medicine. And now that I am a mom, I have a nine-year-old and a three-year-old. I'm always sort of like looking at plants that I bring in through the lens of what are my kids going to think about this? Can I get them to take this? And they love doing things with elderberries. It's the harvesting is really satisfying and fun, you know, to do the, a mountain trip and, and be able to like fill a basket is very satisfying. And the elderberries are so beautiful. They're sort of um, growing in these big clusters and they look this like this powdery blue color, but the, that, um, each one is really sort of like a, a black elderberry underneath this little coating of powder. So they're fun to, to see in that way. And then we make yummy syrup with them, which they love. Yeah. yeah. So that's really fun for favorite land plant. And um, probably my favorite seaweed or sea vegetable to harvest is sort of a novelty one. Also because my kids think it's really fun, which is called... Halosachion, the sea sack. Okay. And it sort of looks like a deflated balloon. Okay. And you can picture a whole cluster of these deflated balloons, which are, I would say, not totally deflated, slightly inflated balloon. <laughs> so it's maybe as long as your pointer finger, maybe a little bit longer, and about um, an inch or so, inch to two wide. And they grow in these clusters. So they look really cool. And if you were to cut some of these, you now have this perfect little sack made of edible seaweed that you can fill with stuff to eat. Mm. So it's really fun for the kids to play with too. You can imagine making like one of my favorite things to eat as a kid that my mom would make for me was stuffed shells out of pasta. Right. And she'd right. fill it with this like ricotta, parsley, eggy kind of mixture. Right. We can right. squirt that right into our little hollow sacks of seaweed, things like that. How so fun really is fun. that? <laughs> I love it. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was just looking up elderberry. Yeah. And it grows here in Florida, but I like looked up on the University of Florida website and they're like, it's very poisonous. And like, so you, you have to cook it? Is that the deal? Like how do... There are different species of elderberry. Okay. So um, we have, I live right on the coast, like I was saying, yeah. and we harvest the elderberry here in the mountains, which is a, the blue elderberry. On the coast, we have red elderberry, which is poisonous. Okay. So it's one that you really have to know your species. Yeah. And I'm not sure what is the species name that you have there for your coastal one. Um, it says Sambucus nigra subspecies canadensis. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that I would. It would be good to check another source on that too. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of times, really good. But I'm like. Well, no, I mean, what I mean is um, not so much that they have the identification incorrect, but that the way they're portraying the information about its edibility. Mm. So you see in the world of herbalism, and when you start looking at using plants in that way, mm -hmm. sometimes the different agencies, like if you were to look something up on um, like the Forest Service or USDA website, mm -hmm. 
they could have very different information about the edibility of something versus another source. Okay. Yeah. It says berries are toxic when raw, but edible when cooked. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'd go for that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is that like most elderberries? You just don't eat them when they're raw. And you have to. That's right. Okay. Yeah, and then also you want to get them off of their little stems because the stems can have some toxic, various information out there on the the toxic nature of the stems that the berries are growing on. But a trick I discovered is that, and they are a pain to pluck off the stems, but a little trick I discovered is that if you take the whole thing and put it in your freezer, then they just, you can just rub them between your hands and they come right off their little stems. Yeah, it's like frozen blueberries. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Well, I feel like I could sit sit and chat with you all day. Uh, but I have a few questions at the end of each episode that I like to ask. And one of them, I'm really curious, what is your favorite sea creature? Oh my gosh, nudibranchs <laughs> all day. <laughs> I love it. You have Aren't those things amazing? They really are. They really are. So did you have a specific experience with sea slugs or nudibranchs or are they just like something you've seen and you're like, this is amazing? Okay, well, I'll give you two little stories there. One, the first time I encountered one was um, I was in my early 20s and I was in Hawaii snorkeling mm-hmm. and I saw one and I just started following it. And I I mean, I must have followed the same nudibranch for a couple hours and I mesmerized. I did not know there were creatures that were like that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, that led to just learning more and more about them. And we have where we are here, there's just so many different types to find. And it's always exciting to find one. And that's one thing I love about going out on a mission to explore the seaweed is that you can't help but see all sorts of amazing animal life as well. All sorts of different sea stars and sponges and nudibranchs and all sorts of interesting things. Yeah. And then the the second story that I'll share with you was about really how I fell in love with my husband, which was when I first met him, he was in a old timey bluegrass band playing guitar and singing. And it was um, in the fall. It was Halloween time. And we were, I was like, you know, walking around town for something that was happening for Halloween. And I noticed that out in front of the, our community's natural history museum, that there was a some sort of performance going on. And I walked over and there he was with his fellow bandmates. He was dressed as a sea creature <laughs> and he was singing a song that he wrote all about nudibranchs. <laughs> and I was like, that's the guy for me. <laughs> That's amazing. So they are firmly entrenched in your heart. That's so fun. They really are. They really are. So So, along the same story vein, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be land or sea. Um, And it could be like a really fun day or it could be a day where like things happened and it makes a really great story now. Oh, that's a really good question. Okay, well, I'll share with you something that just when I think about it, I always smile. (laughs) Always for the rest of my life, when I think back on this day, I will smile. And this was during sort of like that first pandemic summer when we were really in some tight pods, you know, remember those days? And I was out on our... um, the Lost Coast going out towards my favorite tide pools, which I was telling you about that were uplifted during that 
uh, earthquake activity many years ago. And it happened to be time for whatever reason, You sometimes you find these big knots of the bull kelp, neurocystis, that wash up on the shore. Um, they are an annual. And so each year they will sort of like let go and start anew. And uh, we found, I was with my son and his pod buddy and we found in his pod buddy's parents and we found this huge knot of the bull kelp and we had this total Andy Goldsworthy moment <laughs> with it. Do you know who Andy Goldsworthy no. is? He is one of my favorite artists and he creates artwork. He will just like go out for the day and see what sort of things he finds just out in nature. It could be rocks, icicles, leaves, fall leaves, whatever it might be. And he'll create something with it that is usually ephemeral in nature. You can picture like a sculpture made out of icicles or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking his stuff up right now. Ephemeral is the way to describe it. It's amazing. Yeah. And he, and I, not always ephemeral because he does create some very interesting sculptures out of rock as well, which is like another thing that he's sort of famous yep, for. I see that right here. Very cool. So those are sort of anti-ephemeral. <laughs> but um, we just had this very spontaneous Andy Goldsworthy-esque art exuberant moment with all of this bull kelp. And it really just showed what a uh, utilitarian, versatile thing seaweed can be. Mm -hmm. So we instantly, the boys were using it as jump ropes, <laughs> these, these long cables, okay, of, uh, you know, 50 feet long or so of of just like leathery, it almost feels like a big rope, like a big leathery rope that's sort of skinnier and tapered on one side down to maybe the thinness of a pencil to something that is as thick as your forearm towards the other side with a big bulb on top. Mm -hmm. Then the boys were turning them into bowls and ladles and all sorts of like utilitarian types of jars and things that you might use. And, um, and then the dad there, he's very musical. He was turning one into um, musical instruments. You can, this also, this big stipe is hollow. So you can turn it into something that is like a trumpet or a flute or a tuba. And then I picked up a couple pieces of driftwood and I started knitting with it. I was like, oh my gosh, you can knit this. I just knit seaweed. What? <laughs> And we just had, by the end of this experience, we sort of laid out all these different things that we had made with this material we just encountered. And it was just like, given the heaviness of that, the season of sort of like our first go with the pandemic and um, feeling very isolated from other people, it was just such a spontaneous, fun time where we really felt like free and happy. Yeah. And I'll just always yeah. remember that so fondly. Oh, that's so fun. <laughs> like truly channeling your inner child and just playing. So playful. Yeah, completely. Very cool. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funds for a project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, back to our beloved Klamath Mountains that I was telling you about earlier. Mm -hmm. My husband, he like I was saying about the conifers and just really appreciating this area. He created this 360 mile long distance hiking trail that goes through the Klamath mountains called the Bigfoot trail. He created it. He did. Amazing. And, um, we, it's, you know, slated to become a, a national recreation trail. It's like in the bill moving through government right now. It's really cool. But 
the reason why he created this trail was, well, one, because it's a glorious place for a long hike and there wasn't really a long through hike. There wasn't a through hike mm -hmm. through this area that existed that really explored all of the six wilderness areas that make up it, yeah. make it up and so forth. There is a, a corner of it that the Pacific Crest Trail cuts through, but not really the whole thing. And also to bring attention to what a remarkable place this is in terms of the biodiversity and to provide opportunities for restoration and stewardship of this area. So we started a nonprofit called the Bigfoot Trail Alliance mm -hmm. to be able to do projects in this area. And it's been, like I was saying, it's a really rugged place. And so the people that are living in different nooks and crannies of the this mountain region, oftentimes the youth there don't have much connection with each other from all these different small communities of mountain towns. And so we've been using some grant funding that we have had to create youth stewardship experiences, to bring youth together from different corners, to have educational experiences about this incredible mountain range and ecosystems that are in their very backyards. And we would love to do more of that and get more people involved with doing on the ground restoration work of these various trails, which are in um, different states of repair, I would say. Yeah. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And then being able to, if, if the check was truly blank, the Klamath Mountain is a, I'm sorry, the Klamath River is a river that is older than the Klamath Mountains. It was there first, if you can imagine that, and the mountains rose up around it. And this river is truly the lifeblood for indigenous people that whose cultures have have survived on the salmon and other resources from this river for time immemorial. And I'm not sure the year that they were put in, I want to say maybe the 1940s, that may be incorrect. There were several dams mm. placed upriver on the Klamath that completely changed the experience of salmon runs mm -hmm. on this river. And the dams aren't doing a whole lot in terms of generating electricity. Mm. And it's just time for them to be taken out. And it's been a hugely contentious issue here. And um, they're they're killing the, the life of the river. And so I would say with that blank check, take those things out, um, provide whatever restoration efforts would best serve the Klamath River, and then try to revitalize the cultures that have suffered due to the, these incredible environmental impacts. Yeah of the Karuk, the Hoopa, and the Yurok people. Great asks. Yeah. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? Just say no to plastic. <laughs> I'll go with that. <laughs> it's amazing. And another hat that I used to wear, um, I worked in the, the field of um, environmental education, specifically around waste reduction mm -hmm. for many years. Okay. And I used to teach kids about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And I would take groups of kids out to the beach to do cleanup work. And it was amazing the pieces of plastic mm -hmm. deb debris that we found that clearly came from the other side of the ocean yeah. as well. Like the, your plastic has a story to tell. Right. It travels far it never goes away it finds its way into the ocean and you know via other water bodies it's just an ever 
ever-increasing problem. So whenever you can avoid plastic, please do. That's a great one. I want to tack one on. So I saw that you had a blog post about nature journaling. And I think that is such a fun way to interact with your environment, whether you're land or sea. So could you describe what nature journaling is? Certainly. You can picture nature journaling as a way to record your experiences outside. And outside doesn't have to be anything grandiose. If you look up and you see the sky, you are outside in nature. So it's a place to record your observations, things that you that your observations make you wonder about, things you notice, questions you have, and also how you feel about it all. That's an important observation as well. And um, sometimes people are intimidated by the idea of nature journaling because we have the story sometimes that we tell ourselves that I can't draw. This isn't something I'm good at, but it's not really about artistic skill. It's about recording information. And it's a way to uh, better better notice things that are happening all around you. It's a way to slow down. If I, I had this mission for a while that when I went uh, on outdoor experiences, you know, not just necessarily in my yard, but like if I was going to go on a hike or a backpacking trip or a camping trip or something like that, that I wasn't going to take any pictures. Mm. I was just going to draw or I have a little tiny watercolor kit that I bring with me that used to be my grandmother's that um, I you know paint a picture and it turns out that when you take the time to do that and you slow down and it doesn't have I mean you could say even two minutes you're making a quick sketch of something and writing some words to add a little different detail you remember so much more about your experience than if you snap off 10 quick pictures right so much more it's it's really incredible so it's a way to just sort of like get deeper with your senses outside to interact more with the the natural world around you to notice more to hone your observation skills and engage your brain as well because it's not just what you're noticing but it's like what that reminds you of and what questions you have about it and what it makes you want to learn more about and all of this is so important for cultivating curiosity which is i think something that all of us need to be working on for our entire lives. It's what like makes you feel jazzed about life. Yes. To be curious about it. Yes. Be curious about it. Engage with it. Enjoy it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. So say no to plastic, find alternatives. They're out there. They're fairly easy to find too. And do some nature journaling. Yes. Yes. And I'm not sure if you found it or not in um, what you were looking at, but during the pandemic, I started this um, one blog called uh, Greenwood Schoolhouse. So you go to greenwoodschoolhouse.org. And I created all of these quick, fun nature journaling uh, videos and prompts with the idea that kids suddenly were with pandemic style school, most kids were spending so much more time in front of their computer screen. Mm. And so I wanted to create a series of things that could really use your couple minutes in front of the computer screen as a launching board, launching uh, (laughs) pad to get you outside into your, your yard, even, you know, out to the sidewalk, wherever you are, just to get you outside and engaging with the natural world around you. So that's a resource that is out there and um, 
teachers have really enjoyed using them too for for prompts for their class to get outside and try different fun ways of nature journaling. I love that. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your work, where's the best place to do so? A couple different things. You can check out Dandelion Herbal Center. We're at dandelionherb.com. You could check us out on Instagram at Dandelion Herbal Center. And then, so that's sort of, I, I walk this world wearing these two hats. One is more herby and one is more sciencey. Mm-hmm. So I've got that, that hat. And then there's also the Backcountry Press hat, which you can find at backcountrypress.com and um, also over on Instagram, Backcountry Press. And both of our websites too, you could sign up for our newsletters if you're interested in things that we've got going on and interesting tidbits and ideas that we share and prompts for you to get you out there exploring. I love it. Well, Allison, I had so much fun chatting with you today. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, I had so much fun too. Likewise. Thank you, Kara. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.